I remember when it happened, you know, I actually simply just won the car for market year that morning. And I was playing on that last couple of minutes and I saw him get, kick the ball in. Obviously, the ball's come back in from Coxie. And I'm going, there he is. He's, he's blocks market year. There was no way he's getting off the ground. And I've just beelined towards him, grabbed hold of his shirt and just held on for dear life. And I truly didn't know who had marked the ball. So like, I, I turned around and was like, where's the ball? I had a massive cut in my head here. And I was like, where's the ball? Who's got it? And I turned around and Leo's on the ground with the ball in his hand. I've gone, thank God. And then the siren goes and I just jump on top of him. Welcome everyone to the Bloods of Old podcast, Joel Brown your host here, find me on Twitter at Joel Brown underscore JB and as we record this we now know the two teams that will face off for AFL's biggest prize over in WA, Optus Oval, the Melbourne Demons and the Western Bulldogs and uh, if you head to the Bloods of Old Facebook page at Bloods of Old, uh, also on Twitter, uh, I put up a little diagram, I think the kids call them memes now, uh, to potentially help Swan supporters pick a side. Um, you know, you had the likes of Paul Ruse, Ron Barassi, Jared Healy in their Melbourne threads, and the likes of Simon Garlic. Yes, he did play for the Swans. Uh, Rodney Eade and Big Bad Basil Hall in the Footscray get-up. And uh, as it stands, going through the Facebook post, uh, <laughs> I tell you what, uh, from the faithful, most Swan supporters, they're definitely going for the Ds. A lot of 2016 Grand Final references, and because I'm a sucker for punishment, I did re-watch uh, a YouTube video which highlighted the clear free kick in balance of that game. <sighs> Still stinks to this day. Still stinks to this day. But regardless of that, I'm definitely uh, going for the Ds. The big one being that uh, they haven't won in, what, like 50 or 60 years. So that's uh, that'll be a great accomplishment, no doubt. But for me, me personally, it's got to be Paul Ruse. A big Paul Ruse, Mark. You already know that. But this will just prove again how great of a coach he is or was. I still reckon he'll coach again. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Carlton might give him a call. I don't know. Don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I know he's helped with North Melbourne. Yeah, no, leave it there. And it'll just show another successful coaching transition plan. I mean, obviously, a premiership coach from 2005. How could we forget? Going to talk very much on 2005 with Ty Canelli a little bit later on. But obviously, the Paul Ruse, John Longmire, horse, that transition, probably one of the best the AFL has seen in quite some time. And I liken Paul Ruse his time as the the Melbourne head coach to when Ron Barassi coached the Swans in the mid-90s. You know, got the train back on the track and it looks like they could very much be premiers. But just on a side note, just on a side note, obviously uh, the Western Bulldogs absolutely spanked. I mean, absolutely, comprehensively spanked, comprehensively beat the power by the Western Bulldogs. So kudos to them for that. But I personally, I personally wanted... 
Port Adelaide in there because I'm a I'm a I'm one of those guys that likes to see a uh, interstate club give it to the Victorians and uh, and obviously just because I don't like the Western Bulldogs given 2016. But another sort of side part what to this story was I wanted Port Adelaide to wear the prison bars. Could you imagine? Could you imagine just putting it out there? Say Port Adelaide did get to the grand final and you know obviously the AFL has to clear what jumpers or jerseys they wear. And, you know, they'll clearly say, you know, you're not allowed to wear the prison bars. But what if the players just went out there and were wearing prison bars? What could they do? Say Port Adelaide won, would they strip them of the premiership? That'd be pretty controversial. But uh, that was just a little side piece there. But I'm talking in, uh, I'm not talking reality because the reality is it is the Western Bulldogs and the Melbourne Demons. <laughs> uh, so, yes, uh, I will 100% be going for the D's. Up the Melbourne Demons. It's a grand old flag. It's a high-flying flag. It's the emblem for me and for you. It's the emblem of the team we love. The team of the red and the blue. It's a grand old flag. It's a high-flying flag. It's the emblem for me and for you. It's the emblem of the team we love. The team of the red and all right, enough of that. On that note, just a reminder, if you uh, want to support the show, give Bloods of Old a like on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and uh, we're on all podcast platforms, but if you're uh, of the iTunes persuasion, give the pod a five-star review. Greatly appreciate it. We'll read it out on the show. But enough of me jibber-jabbering around. It is now time for the main event. My interview with Premiership hero, cult hero, Tyg Kennelly, after this quick break. Hey, I'm Mads. And I'm Debs. Together, we are true bloods. We love the bloody Swannies, and we do a review and a preview of Swannies games each and every week. And to anyone who wants to have a listen to our pod, jump on all good podcast suppliers, whether that's your Apple podcast or your Spotify podcast or your Google Chrome podcast. Jump on. That's where you'll find true bloods, and we appreciate the support. Thanks, guys. My next guest was recently announced as vice-captain in the AFL's greatest Irish team of all time. He's the only player to win an AFL Premiership medallion and a senior All-Ireland Championship. He's a real cult hero of the Sydney Swans, a 2015 Swans Hall of Famer. Hello and welcome, Ty Canelli. Thank you, Joel. Great, <laughs> great introduction, mate. Uh, yeah, that's one uh, I'll, uh, I'll cherish to be in the vice captain with uh, poor old Jimmy. Lord rest his soul as the, as the captain, not a bad captain. Well, I was going to say they're a little bit stiff not being named uh, captain. <laughs> yeah, I missed out on LeBron now, but uh, I got the premiership. Poor old Jimmy didn't get the premiership, which is a bit disappointing for him, obviously. I know what the answer would be, but uh, would you prefer to Brownlow or the premiership medallion? <laughs> Both would have been very handy. Um, yeah, I, I remember doing actually a, a still a radio column for um, for Triple M, and it was a weekly thing. And I was only in my second or third year of playing regular football, um, so it would have been probably two thousand and three. I reckon it might have been two thousand two. But um, I used to do a weekly, you know, update on what's happening in footy and uh, preview, review kind of thing. And uh, they, we started at round one that they were going to put on me to win the Bronla, and um, I was about 250 to one <laughs> and uh, I came in a bit short actually and the boys were getting 
the boys are getting a bit excited about it. But uh, yeah, um, now nah, it's a midfielder award. I'll uh, I'll leave it to Jimmy and the and, and the midfielders. It's funny you say that. Um, I mean, I think '87 was when uh, Plugger Tony Lockett mm. uh, won a Brownlow. Do you think uh, it'll the game will ever sort of change to sort of be for the dominant forwards? I mean, we've got the Buddy Franklins and all that out there, but it is very much a midfield game. It is, but. Uh, is it a true reflection of who's been the best player in the competition? I'm not too sure because, you, you know, it's you can have forwards, obviously, they can kick 100 goals and not um, win a Bronner. Or you can have defenders that can, you know, play on the best forwards in the, in the country and, and stop them scoring and, and not get, you know, they get recognition, but to, to be recognised as, as the best player in the competition. It, it could be something where you, you look at, you know, quite possibly trying to change the, the format, which would be very difficult to do. It's a great tradition. I love it um, myself. But, um, yeah, it's it, it's it's a pure midfield award, really. It has today, and, and I think it will be for, for a while yet, to, the, the Brownouts. Really, you know, the umpires looking at numbers, the players, are, you know, it's a numbers game, and, and the midfielders and, and the defenders are not going to get those numbers, are they? The forwards, right? I would imagine growing up in Ireland, Jimmy Steins, was he the, the poster boy for AFL over there? Yeah, it was huge. Yeah. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about the game, you know, but um, there used to be a, a sports show on Saturday morning, um, sports stadium, it was called, and um, they used to show some highlights of, of, of Jimmy's games. Um, but, yeah, he was huge. Well-known, well-known, obviously, in Ireland, well-known, of course, here. But, uh, yeah, he was the poster boy. Funnily enough, there's a guy, Sean White, who played fullback for Melbourne who was uh, one of the first guys to come out. Yeah, he's actually was born in the st- born in Scotland and moved to the Stall, where I come from, a small country town, and lived there for about 10 years. So uh, the chances of having two fellas from uh, a town with 1,500 people going on to play, you know, he, he, uh, Sean played nearly 150 games of footy as well for Melbourne. So quite a, quite a unique story there. Did you get to meet the great man, uh, Jimmy Stones? I did indeed. Um, I, I reached out to him when I first arrived out, um, you know, in 99, just to, uh, one, just to be a bit of a, a mentor and, and asked him to help me out with a few things. And, um, you know, he helped me out with contracts um, as well, which was great. But, um, yeah, I went down to Melbourne a few times and uh, he, he, Jimmy was Jimmy. He did what he did very well and, and put you into positions that you didn't feel comfortable in um, as far as when he's what was doing some work with Reach. Um his charity, and um, he had a had a, a function where it was about uh, it was about fifteen hundred people, uh, and I was sitting at the front. I said, oh, "I'll come along," and he just throws me straight on the bus. Just goes, "Oh, I'd like to welcome someone to the stage," and I reckon I was here probably you know, a year and a half. And he just handed me the mic and said nothing else, and I had to talk, <laughs> and it was just I not obviously not prepared. I didn't know what to do. I was like just blown away, you know, and it was one of those real life lesson moments about you can handle things that, um, you know, the anxiety and the fear that, that I had for a couple of minutes when he was introducing me and I was just frozen almost and, and to get through that. And um, that was one of Jimmy's best, best traits is putting people into position that they feel uncomfortable, but obviously growing from the experience and coming through it, you know, and, and obviously he's worked with the young people on the streets um, is, 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 is truly something that's very, very special and very strong. And at this time, I guess, as a young kid in Ireland, is is Gaelic football your main focus? I mean, were you ever a soccer player or into soccer? Yeah, I loved it. I loved both. Um, look, my dad was a 
um, a successful Gaelic footballer, Captain Kerry, and won five premierships, five All-Irelands in in, uh, in Kerry. So I uh, like most young men, you know, I grew up idolizing my dad, you know, and, um, you know, if your dad was a butcher, you must be become a butcher or a doctor or whatever it is. You know, most, most young men anyway, you know, they idolize their dads and they follow what the dads are doing. And I was no different. In fact, he'd won five All-Ireland medals, so I had a bit, bit of living up to do. Um, but I did love my soccer. Um, and there was some conflicting stuff going on. You know, a lot of people in a small town where I come from as well, this boy's choosing soccer over, over Gaelic football. What's his dad going to think? And a lot of that goes back to the history of Ireland and England. You know, there's an English sport and um, right up to, you know, the mid-70s and Ireland, you couldn't play soccer. Um, if You couldn't play Gaelic football if you played soccer or rugby in Ireland because the foreign scene is a foreign sport. So the indigenous sports of hurling and, and football um, were, were the sports that were played. And if you chose to, to, to play a foreign sport, you actually wanted to low play Gaelic football or, or hurling for a year. Um, so that, there was a lot of tradition there with the history of the two codes and, uh, and certainly have been the son of a, you know, I suppose, a legend. Um, you know, a lot of people were like concerned about what angle I was going. And I played a lot of soccer, played for Ireland in the 15s. And um, I was lucky enough to get a, a contract to, to go to Blackburn Rovers um, on a, a three-year deal. But um, yeah, I, I lasted about three months. Uh, it was pretty difficult at that stage. I was a young 14, uh, 14, um, going across to, to England, leaving home, obviously, and basically train in the morning, school, train in the afternoon. It was just day after day after day after day in the academy, still set up, but just being so far away from home at that young age was um, was pretty difficult and I couldn't handle it. And I just came back and I really threw myself into, into Gaelic football after that, really. And you mentioned the conflict there with soccer and Gaelic football. Was, I guess, sort of eventually when you do make the jump uh, to Australia and try to play AFL footy, um, did you think, oh, well, if I, if I do well in another code? Because was there a bit of fear that if you didn't sort of live up to other people's expectations because your father was a local hero and was such a great player? Yeah, I kind of looked at it a different way that my, my my life had almost been set. Like I'd started breaking into senior senior team. I played senior football at fifteen when I came from from in Ireland, and I, I my my trajectory was there, and I could see where I was going and where my life was going, and where my football career was going, and and I felt like the Swans just really and the AFL sorry option really came at the right time for me when I was really looking for another challenge as a young fella going well I can see where I'm going here let's let's try and let's dabble at this and let's see where it takes me and, um it was really a time of okay because there, there was more pressure on me almost to stay and and to, to follow my father's footsteps and, and I was like well it's my it's my choice my career it's my life I want to I want to take up this challenge of trying to be a professional athlete and travel to go to the other side of the world and I think the fact that I'd given up um you know professional soccer um that was probably a, it was hurting and I was like well I'm not going to give up another one am I um, and that's where I really, you know, I, I said, right, let's go and let's get after it. And, and that's when I took it up. When research, and I almost fell out of my chair, is it true that you were almost cult and bound or even worse, becoming a magpie? Yeah, more magpie. Um, uh, Danny Frawley, a lot of mercy. Uh, um, he's, um, he was the assistant coach at Collingwood and he met my, my dad and I in Dublin and, um, had offered us a contract there and then. I played Ireland versus Australia under 17, so it was an under 17 series, and um, and that's where I, I, I obviously got recognised from the recruiters and um, the Cart and Collingwood got in touch. And and Collingwood was quite funny, you know. I didn't know a whole lot at the time, but ever since, you know, I was getting regular um, apparel from from Collingwood sent to my house in Ireland. Like I'm talking numerous amounts of it, and I was like, 
the <laughs> form of bribery or what, you know? Um, and obviously at the time I was like, oh, this is great. How good is this? You're a 17 year old kid going, oh, look at these tops and whatnot, you know? Um, but then um, the Swans jumped on board and um, and showed just a real keen interest in going about it the right way. And um, they came over with um, George Stone. They were all talking about a scholarship, you know, to go to, go to university, which helped my parents obviously with the, the comfort of knowing, well, he's going over there, he's going to get an education as well. Um, and, and just went about it the right way, really, the Swans, and, and, and that's why I, I decided to, to do it. But a, a lot of it, it was, look, it was a difficult situation for my, my parents. I can only imagine, I'm, I'm a dad of three kids now, my daughter's seven, you know, I can imagine 10 years' time she goes to Ireland or, you know, you know flips the other side of the world. It'd be insane, you know. It'd be very difficult for a parent to to, to let your 17, 18-year-old actually make that decision to go. And, um, but I was pretty stubborn about it. I was going to do it. and. Um, in the end, they, they kind of. My dad was kind of behind pushing me a bit, and my mom was. <laughs> he wouldn't say that in front. He wouldn't say that in front of my mom, but he was like, "You, you got to take this, you know." You gotta... <laughs> and my mom's like, "Yeah, what are you doing? You don't know how it's going to be, and all this." <laughs> you you mentioned Denny Frawley there, who uh, we sadly lost um, a couple of years ago. I guess was there any initial thoughts on on Spud? Yeah, I loved it. I loved uh, instant connection actually with Danny. Um, and throughout my career here, uh, I've met him obviously numerous times. And um, you know, his family actually, the Frawleys, I met you know his brother a couple of times. Was up in Darwin working for the AFL also. Um, I spent a couple of weeks uh, weekends up there. I went up there for the NT and went to the Tiwi Islands. Um, you know, through Spud and, and and his brother. Um, so yeah, I think being a bit country too helped. Um, with that connection, but um, yeah, very sad, wasn't it? And um, yeah, it's it brings to the forefront a lot of issues that are happening with 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 coaching and the game itself of, of AFL football. You know how how um, how intense it is, and and you know I often look at other sports. I'm I'm going down a bit of a tangent here, but you know I look at other sports, and I I'm not too sure that they're, they're as intense as far as the the the, the damage to, to the coaching staff and, and being involved in the coaching myself. And I can see how intense it is and, and the, the, I suppose the workload and the intensity that's, that's on the head coaches and, and all coaches is just immense. And I wonder if other sports are like that. I'm not too sure. You're, you're a big advocate for men opening up um, regarding depression and mental health. I guess when you heard the news that we did lose Denny Frawley, I guess not that you felt uh, that you know, that responsible or that you could have done something, but just that helplessness. I mean, how did you uh, receive the news? Yeah, look, it affects everyone in, a, in all different forms, you know, and, and the latest, obviously, impact of, of the pandemic and whatnot is, is, you know, it's going to be around for a long, long time. And I was reading an interesting article a couple of days ago, you know, talking about the mental health and, and how there's this new thing called languishing where you're not, you're not depressed or you're not in the, the flow, but you're actually just languishing, which is a form of mental health, mental illness where you're just, you're not motivated to get up. You stay in bed for an extra hour and a half, just doing nothing. And you just feel like you're going nowhere. And, and that's very true. You know, and a lot of that is obviously the form of, of, of the mental health of the, the pandemic. Sorry. But um, yeah, look, I've just, I suppose it's more maturity. You know, I've just grown up and uh, grown up finally at 40 um, to, to, you know, it's okay to to take off your 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 you know, your, your body armor and, and your bulletproof vest and, and just be yourself. You know, and uh, funnily enough, and funny enough, about a year ago, a friend of mine uh, reached out and um, hadn't been doing doing so well. So, and there'd been a couple of mates that had, re- had opened up a bit, and I said, "Well, I'm going to do something about this." So, um, we just I just set up this group, a chat, a WhatsApp chat, and we've got about forty blokes that go for a swim and a bit of exercise every Wednesday and every Friday morning, um, and it's growing and growing and growing. You know, and 
Um, and we just have chats and we just, and, and it's without the alcohol, it's without the, you know, the socializing, just have that safe environment so you can come out and say, look, I'm not doing too well. Or now there's blokes that are going through divorces, there's blokes that are, they can't sleep with their kids, there's blokes that are fighting and all the challenges that you have as being a, a certainly my age bracket and your own age bracket where you kind of disconnect from your social network for a while and 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 all of a sudden you kind of go, wow, I'm, I'm 40, mid-40s and you know, I've started a new career or, or a new business and I've disconnected from my friends and you're really struggling to, to reconnect with people uh, in a similar mind. And, and that's why we kind of started and it's been very, very good. And it's helped me, you know, I'm exercising a lot more. Um, I'm talking a lot more openly to people and trying to help people. And, and certainly in Danny's situation, you know, it brings all that to the forefront. You're going, you know, if we can only help one person to say, okay, look, man, I'm really, really struggling today. Um, uh, it's okay, man. It's okay. Like it's, yeah, it's good. And, um, you know, a lot of that, I've done a lot of videos for, for this group to try and say, well, look, uh, I'm not doing so well today. And, and, and you know, I think the first time you're the person to do that and jump on and people, you know, take the bullet, really, the first person to take the bullet and the rest will jump on board. But And that's what takes the courage for people to do it. But it's certainly a concern, isn't it, for all over the world. I see it in Ireland. It's it's a huge part of a, a huge problem in society right now, the mental health and, and the issues that are going on. And it's no different here. Yeah, it's. I think the biggest thing uh, is just to, if you are feeling um, sort of down or you're not too sure how you feel, to put your hand up and I guess to to reach out to someone. And it's good that it's sort of more, it's less stigmatized, I guess, uh, yeah. in, nowadays. One hundred percent, it is. You know, um, yeah, we still got a lot of work to do, but you, you're right. I think people now are, are starting to understand the impacts of. of you know, working on your mental strength and your mental health, it's no different now. And, and people clearly understand what well, I work on my physical being. Um, you know, start working on your mindfulness and 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 you your your mental strength and your mental capabilities is just as important as, as your physical side of things. Now, Ty Canelli becomes a swan. I guess you sort of mentioned there earlier that it was sort of the the, the scholarship program, like the education. I guess was that something that Collingwood or some other clubs weren't necessarily offering? Um, I didn't get into that much detail with him. It was a lot of it. Collingwood was a lot of with Ron Joseph actually was the, their agent and was the bloke that was trying to recruit. Um, and it was the, the Swans were really up front him, and um, and that was a lot of his Basil Sellers was that was that was the financial backer behind it because you got to remember I was an international student, so you're talking about 25, 30 grand a semester back in 1999, which is a mm. lot of money, 60k a year just to get a player off from the other side of the world. Actually, we don't know if he can kick a ball properly or play the game, so. It's a big investment from a football club and from a benefactor to actually try and invest in people in the club uh, to come to the club, you know. So, um, and the Swans done that. And, you know, look, at, you know, obviously there were some people there in George George Stone, especially uh, once I arrived at the club. Bill Mullins, who was, who was the, just started as the player welfare manager, was the other one that really became fodder figures for me and helped me settle in and um, into the, you know, the uniqueness of, of an AFL football club. But I believe you were stuck in immigration for a while. Uh, what happened there? <laughs> yeah, it was like I thought I was just going up to the old local, the local corner store and getting some milk. Really, uh, yeah. The only I'd never obviously there was no, you know, no phones. It was you know you dial the phone and it was a phone call. That's what you got. You know you had your know, big cords and everything. That was your phone. It was no video. It was no zooms like this. Obviously back in uh, ninety eight, ninety nine, and. Uh, the only message I had was was from 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 Phil Mullins was that um, I'll be waiting once you arrive. Um, a small bald man with a red swan's jump jacket on, and that's the only information I had coming from Ireland. So I arrive in immigration, and like 
And it just shows where the club was at also, you know, the lack of knowledge of coming into the country around having an actual passport, and to, a visa, sorry. Um, and, uh, you know, I was sitting there and they eventually made contact. Uh, I was waiting. I was immigration and asked me for, have you got a, have you got a visa? I was like, what? Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm here to play. I'm here to play with the swans. Like, a, um, and uh, I had to sit and wait there for a few hours and they got all the paper passed through and, I eventually saw that small bore man with the red jacket and Phil Mullins, who's become a lifelong friend of mine. God, I, I would imagine, were you, were you freaking out at all? Or, I, mean... oh, I was freaking right off. Yeah. <laughs> Funny enough, Joel, I haven't told this to many people, and I'm just about to tell thousands. Um, I, I got to Singapore. So I, I flew from Dublin, from Shannon to London, and London to Singapore, Singapore to Sydney. And I got to Singapore, and they said, okay, off the plane. I said, I'm not getting off the plane. I'm not getting off the plane until I arrive in Sydney. I was a 17-year-old boy. I had no idea where I was going, what I was doing, and I wasn't getting off the plane. So they cleaned the plane around me, and I, I had, luckily enough, I remember being in an exit seat, and I sat in the exit seat while they cleaned around me, and they filled the plane up, and filled it with fuel, and, and vacated the plane, and off to Sydney. I didn't get off the plane. Oh, wow. <laughs> until I got to Sydney. <laughs> I just had no idea where I was going, what I was doing, obviously. Um, young boy. I was literally very green. Green being an Irish man, but geez, was I green at that well, stage. I was going to say uh, immigration in Sydney, um, you know, not trying to get too political here. I don't know how the immigration department in Singapore would be. So you, I guess you were pretty lucky that they didn't try to kick you off yeah. or get you in trouble. <laughs> no, that's right. Well, I think because I was in transit at the point, obviously, that I just stayed or actually didn't, I didn't enter Singapore as such. Um, but at the, yeah, looking back at it, it was like, oh, I can't believe they didn't drag me off the plane or get security. Um, yeah, <laughs> mightn't have taken off at all the journey. What's your first impressions, I guess, of Sydney as a city? I mean, you're a young, good looking Irish lad in Australia. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I actually finally, I, I do remember, it's strange where the things you remember. You know, I remember, you remember a lot of forests, don't you, really? But I remember the first time flying into Sydney and looking down over Sydney, thinking how green it was, how much, how many trees there was in Sydney, on greenery and trees. And I still think that today, compared to other cities, there's lots of green trees on the streets and and around. You know, I was thinking how green it was. And um, but Phil picked me up, and um, it was early morning, and then took me down for breakfast, and we were down to Coogee. And um, I remember calling the Coogee. Yeah, he comes in and he goes, uh, just coming down Coogee Road, and he goes, "What's the name of this place?" And he, I said, "Coogee," and um, but yes, it's a. How do I say this? It's a. I, I like the uh, scenery in Sydney, uh, certainly in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Um, and I'm not talking about the mountains and lakes, uh, but the scenery is certainly very nice. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. What was your impressions of the club as a whole when you uh, walked through the doors? Yeah, uh, I was in awe of everything. You know, at the time, I was just a big sponge trying to, you know learn as much as I can. Um, but having said that, I was actually a bit surprised how poor as facilities were. Um, and even back in, that's back in 99, you know, our warm-up area now, where the boys warm up, was actually our gym. And before we'd play in the weekends, we actually have to move the gym equipment to the side, which would allow us to warm up. So we'd finish our weights on a Thursday or Friday, and you'd have to pick up all the weight equipment and move it to the side so you could warm up underneath the SCG. The locker room was tiny. Um, but I, I didn't, I didn't bother me. I was, you know, I come from the country. I was used to use it, but I, I, I had this, I suppose, ideology of thinking, well, I'm going to professional at, at club. It's going to be unbelievable. It's going to be mint. Um, yeah. But I, I did, I, I felt very warm 
um, as far as the people that were there and the welcome that I got and, and support, and, you know, um, and I was from Richard was there and, and Richard Collis and, and, and Colin Siri was the CEO. And, um, you know, there was a lot of good people that were at the club um, and a big impact on me at that time and, and made, certainly made me feel very welcome, but very foreign at the same time, you know, as far as the, the language, um, you know, I often say that to people, you know, you look at, you come into a football club, we speak the same language, well, Irish and English. And uh, and uh, I, I did the lingo. I was like I was in the middle of Russia sometimes because the boys had this lingo for things, and I had no idea what they were saying, and they had no idea what I was saying. And it's just a nod at each other all the time. We go, yeah. And there was a lot of nodding with me and the boys for the first uh, six weeks. Something they got a bit more torn to my to my to my accent. Who, who did they uh, shack you up with? I uh, know that they usually sort of shack you up with, uh, I guess, a more senior player or middle to senior player and another rookie. Uh, did who they have you with? I actually moved with a family for um, the Oars, who wanted a, a, a lecturer at the University of NSW, where I ended up doing my teaching degree. Um, he was a lecturer there, and, and they knew nothing about footy, took me on. But um, living in Lorelein Bay, and I don't know if you know a whole lot of Sydney, it's in between Coogee and Maroubra, and it's this little inlet that is incredible. Like, I thought I was after arriving in. <laughs> you know, I've got this property that is on the on the actual water and I was like wow and this is where this family was and this is where I was supposed to obviously live for my first couple of years but um Jason Jason Saddington Leo Barry and he James were um three boys that lived around the corner for me so their basically job was to chaperone me pick me up in training take me home blah 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 you know and that was the take me on the drink and, and get me very drunk um was the <laughs> other prerequisite that they, they managed to do early in the piece too that's amazing. Uh, Jason Sabaton, Leo Barry, uh, great plays um, uh, for yeah. the Swans. Um, I guess sort of you've got that living arrangement there. Like, does it become like a second family? Because I've sort of, I was speaking to Teddy Richards uh, a couple of years ago, because you got a lot of plays either from South Australia or all around the country. Um, I, and obviously, I guess not having local family or friends that the, the your players and your teammates become a second family, you spend a lot of time together. Yeah, yeah very true. Like uh, every moment, as, as far as training but once you finish because you, you don't have that connection straight away with obviously mates or, or network around you as far as family is concerned so yeah you go to movies you go hang out you do whatever you do is is with your mates and what and what we're able to let able to do later on is is really build on that strength of connection and trust with the group around 2003 4 and 5 um, because we were so close and it helped build that bond even tighter and we really tapped into that so you're right like and it's something that obviously other clubs really do struggle with finding that, um, you know, because we're, we're in the state club and a lot of people obviously come to the state to play the game. But um, I, I think there's a, it's, it's something I've said to a few people. I, I think what separates the Swans playing group, and this has been since I've you know, started playing, is the care factor they have for each other. Uh, I think it, there's no other club. Um, you know, and I haven't experienced them inside all of the clubs, obviously not the people, but the care factor within the playing group, the Swans, for as long as I can remember, and being back there as a coach and players that I know, I don't know, um, it's immense. Uh, and I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that everyone understands that you've had to relocate, they've had to relocate at some point. So they've gone through what that young boy coming from South Australia, WA and Melbourne has had to go through. So there's a, an automatic connection to each other and a care to try and help them get through that relocation. Uh, what happens when uh, you're you're at the SCG and uh, Michael O'Rourkeland asks you to go for a kick? <laughs> yeah, um, it's a uh, great great mate of mine, if not one of my best. Um, 
and it's it's funny. I, I and I don't know what made Mick decide to, to ask me. You know, it's Mick had played in the grand final in '96. You know, he was a senior established player. Saw this bloke arrive. You know, yeah, he goes, "Do you want to kick the ball?" First day arriving training, and I was like, "Kick a ball? I can't even <laughs> mean kick the ball." Like, then that's what you do. You know, you see obviously in AFL and AFL clubs around the country, <clears throat> clubs around the country. Why just go out and have a kick to each other? But I couldn't kick the ball, and, and I didn't know what to do. Never knew how to kick it. And um, Mick and I often joke about it, you know. And he jokes with other people around the fact that he, he saw me kick a couple of times too. And he's like, "Wow, what have we got here? This bloke's got no chance, no chance of making it." All right, yeah. But um, and Jester, you know, I'll never forget, really. You know, I became very, very close mates with Mick and, and still am. And, um, and I don't know whether it's that bad of being a bit of a minority also bloke from the other side of the world you know he might have felt a, a bit of a, a photoship you know come over and put his arm around me and protect me um, and he certainly went in the early days Nick and you mentioned him before Georgie Stone he uh, spent a lot of time uh, with your development especially kicking um, and I think you've said in a previous interview that you probably end up becoming uh, one of the better kicks uh, in the, the side eventually Not the best kick that must have been a misquote <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, look, Joel, it was. I think George figured it out pretty quickly as a, as a as a coach. If this guy can kick, you'll get him. You'll get a game. Uh, and I think he figured that out pretty quickly. And look, I could run. I was quick. I was fit. I was. I could run all day. I was quick. And he goes, right, he's got the athletic traits. Let's let's get his kicking right. And and we he flogged me three or four times a day. Um, and, and and he was ahead of himself as far as coaching is concerned, and, and the way you know it, it built a template up around how we actually start playing, start coaching at home. We're going to get step by step to actually become an AFL player, and we tick it off after a month in Christmas. You know, I had to touch the ball a certain amount of times, and I'd be ticking it off every day how I was doing it. Um, and he really had a plan set in place for for me to try and. You know, pick up the skills of the game, watching vision, um, relentlessly watching vision. And this is back with VCRs. So it wasn't that easy. So, and and the fact is, he, he's a, a man who was an assistant coach himself at the time and had, had two kids and was going through some you know, difficulty with his own boy, Jack, who he ended up losing later with a, a heart condition, you know. So, um, uh, unbelievable what that man has done for me. And, and I have no doubt that, no doubt, if he wasn't at the football club, I don't think I would have, I would have made it, I would have played one game. Well, speaking of one game, uh, you're on the 99 uh, rookie list, elevated, uh, 2001, round 14, Carlton. Uh, Ty Canelli makes his debut. I guess you, you were in the number 41 there, I'm pretty sure. Uh, would obviously uh, change to number 17. Um, uh, what's, your, what's your memory, your first game? Yeah, it was. I was actually a bit frustrated, to tell you the truth. I, I was emergency about five or six times. And it was actually one game I got on the plane to Port Melbourne. But we used to play Port Melbourne Reserves that's in that in that year in 2000. And um, I flow down and then I get a get a call, get to the hotel and get a call saying, um, you got to fly back up. Um, you're playing seniors tomorrow. Um, so I fly back up. Stewie Maxwell was after hurting himself uh, in training. So I fly back up, thinking this is it, I'm playing. And then Stewie gets up and I've got to play the Sydney Football League before, as a curtain raiser before the seniors, you know. So, um, but I was emergency for about six or seven weeks in a row. <clears throat> and... Um, Rocket finally caved into the other coaches, I think, into Georgie. And um, yeah, gave me the nod. But um, I, I remember the, the game obviously starting in the bench back then. There wasn't a lot of rotations. But um, it was a couple of minutes in, and Wayne Swass, uh, Schwatter had made a, uh, made a, made a blue, and, and, and Rocket, the runner, went out and said, 
get him off. I want to talk to him. So I get him off. And then he goes, Ty, you're on. I was like, what? I was expecting to come on after half time. And, you know, there's just a million thoughts going through my head, going off about structures and playing and how to play the game. And I'm not sure I can kick the ball, blah, 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 blah. My head's just going 100 miles an hour. And then I'm on, I'm straight in the wing. And about a minute and a half later, I'm off. And it was probably the best thing ever for me, just to get rid of all that. Um, but I, I remember getting my hands on the ball a bit. Uh, paid no respect to me whatsoever. I got, got, a, got a bit of the ball. And in the last 10 minutes of the game, um, Craig Bradley was getting off the chain a bit. And a runner comes out and says, I want, they want me to run with Craig Bradley. So um, I spent the last 10 minutes tagging Craig Bradley in, the, in my debut. Yeah, not, uh, I guess, sort of, um, you know, tagging him, but uh, not the worst person to be learning off. <laughs> That's right, 100%. You know, and I actually, funny enough, on all that stuff with Wayne Swartz, when I first started at the football club, Swatter used to actually come in and, and used to make me run with him um, and actually make me follow him and say, This is how you learn in games and playing and training. And actually, train as to run beside him and he'd teach me where to run and how to run. And, you know, ball goes in one side, go out this side. And, and that's how he actually spent a lot of coaching was, was through Wayne Swartz by following people and actually going with him. He's another advocate for. Some- for, men, for mental health got, as well. Have you guys um, bonded over that? I've got, got some kids here. Go on, Oxy. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Oxy, go close it off, please. Lock it off. Sorry, Max. That's all good. Um, sorry about that. Um, yeah, Swatter. Yeah, we have for sure. Um, and look, the work he's doing has, has been immense. Um, and he's he, and Swatter's always been like that too. He's been a, a, a very caring, put himself... Um, you know, put put other people in front of himself. Sorry, and uh, and you know he's he's gone through some challenges himself. Uh, certainly, um, we've connected. All right. So your first game, did you get any classic Rodney Eads sprays? Every time I talk to a former Swan player and they played mm-hmm. under Rocket, I always ask, "Have you been sprayed by Rocket?" Yeah, um, he was okay to me, Rocket. Um, I only played senior footy with him for probably a year and a half. So, um, but we kind of built a bit of a connection around, it, it, and this is great. Like, I was a, a reserve player, and I'd miss games in my first year, and I'd fly down to Melbourne with Rocket and go and watch games. And I'd fly down on Friday, watch Friday night, watch Saturday, come back to Sydney, and he'd coach on a Sunday. But I'd go with him, and I might miss games because it just wanted to get me into the heartland of, of footy. And, and I'd sit beside him, and he'd teach me the tactical parts of the game. You know? So we'd built up – not many young 18, 19-year-olds would be able to do that with a head coach, but because I'd been able to spend some time with him. So um, Rocket was great to me. Um, you know, got sprays, for sure, many of them. You know? But um, he does part of uh, coaching back then almost. You know, Rooney wasn't afraid to spray. Horse not afraid to spray. There's, pl- there's still plenty – our spray is going on, but Rocket had a had a, a real way about him. It's like a sarcastic spray. It was um, some of him, some of his stuff was just legendary, and it is. And being part of it was just you'd put your head down, you'd be smirking, you know, because it's not you, but you'd be just thinking about what he's saying. It's um, truly enjoyable stuff. I, I always bring up the one that uh, Darren Creswell told me. Apparently, he said to Matthew Nix, "I'll um, I'll give you three clearances just in case you lose two. <laughs> Ah, he also told him about the messaging that Nixie got from him. You should ask if you ever get Matthew Nixon and ask him the messaging he got from uh, from Rocket. Um, I can't repeat the words that were told to him, but um, yes, you can only imagine what they were. And it was only those three words were were told were told to him on the phone, and that was it. 
and yeah. no, no other messaging. So um, could get emotional rocket in the box, but uh, he's not the only coach to do that. And I mean, at the time when he came in in the mid nineties, he was uh, you know an up and coming um, tactical. Uh, coach and I guess history at times can be a bit harsh on past coaches especially if they're sort of being let, by, let go by a club uh, the Swans they, uh, they I guess part company with Rodney Eade uh, in Sydney in 2002 um, speaking with uh, Rodney Eade especially that 2002 season uh, if some results had gone the other way maybe mm. he doesn't get sacked because there was like a handful of games maybe five or so where there was a point in it, and if they were wins, Swans could have made finals or at least finished a little bit better. I guess you sort of already said your initial thoughts there on Rocket, but I guess on the 2002 season as a whole, was it was it a yeah. turbulent turbulent year? 2002. It, it wasn't. It wasn't. It kind of it kind of blindsided us. The playing group a small bit, you know. You know, he, he we had been okay. We'd been close in a lot of games, and we're going all right, you know. And and, and you're right. We, if a bit of look went our way, we probably would have got those wins and. Now you often think was there something going on behind the scenes, and obviously what transpired, you know, with 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 Rusey and Terry Wallace, you wonder how early in the piece that was all started as far as approaching Terry, um, you know, and and it was quite early in the piece really because round twelve, it's it's you know it's an early time to to be making the call, and um, I, I think not with knowing the ins and outs of the conversations, I, I presume he would have been told you won't be coaching the year, um, and he's gone. Nah, see you later. I'm out of there. So. But um, yeah, we lost to Geelong, and it was the boy was coming up, and um, and he didn't tell us that night after the after the game. We came in the next morning, um, and and told us then that he wouldn't be coaching. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was it wasn't that it was difficult to go through as a as a young player. But it was almost that playing group had been flipping anyway with you know Kelly Schwatter, Creswell, you know um, you know Dunkley, obviously Plugger before they were starting to. They were still there, and then it was, it was ending. And that was the 2002. A lot of them obviously finished up um, that time. And Creswell went on and played on in 2003. But you had your Boltons, your Keiths, your Goods. You know, um, those types were starting to really make an, a name as far as taking the club in a new direction. Um, and that could have been part of the decision with the club as far as you know, a new coach also. Um, but it, it after that, you know, we went on a pretty good run after that, and 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 played some really good football in the back end of 2000. 2002 and um and and that's all off rockets work um you know it, yes you can get a get a bit of a lift from a new coach coming in and, and not knowing who the coach is going to be a caretaker coach but um a lot of that's rockets work and you know, look Ruzi comes in and, and just tells us to play release the shackles as you would as a coach you know i think rocket was getting very technical and and probably getting frustrated where with some of the players and especially adam i think adam was really frustrating him as far as he knew the ability that Adam had, but just wasn't playing under him. And that can be very frustrating as a coach and how you handle that and manage that. And, uh, um, and there's a few players like that. And I think that kind of was getting, getting under his skin a bit. Um, but Ruzi just came in and said, just go and play boys. And as an attacking player, it was probably one of the best things you could ever hear from me. I was just going, have no license and play. And, uh, and, and in the end, um, the way we played footy, myself and Adam were the two players that had a license to go and attack in that team. Like, I had such a license to just go and take the game on, and Adam was the same. Um, and the rest of the boys were covering our back, as, as any other defender will tell you. They do interview and Crouchy, Craig Bolton, Leo Barry, and, and the boys are, and there he goes. I'm off, and uh, you're my, my man as well. I'm off trying to get free Bronlo vaults. It's funny you mention that because I thought um, Paul Roos, he was a, an attacking, um, or, you know, yeah, more of a, an attacking type of centre half back defender. So I guess he, um, 
he sort of gelled with yeah. you pretty uh, yeah. pretty easy being a running defender. So he obviously encouraged that. Yeah, spot on, Joel. Um, and, and he and that's the way he coached me. You know, that's the way he coached me around. You know, you see the ball go and get it. They're worried about you. Play in front of them. Be aggressive. You know, and and this is the time when when defenders didn't. You know, this is a long time ago, and and I was defending twenty meters in front. Uh, and and being aggressive at center bounces and, and and just going for my life and taking the game on and, and that was Ruzi's coaching you know got mate be aggressive get him thinking about you you know you're having a forward and thinking about a defender it was such a foreign thing back then um yeah you know, and I remember in 2003 four and five that time I ended up getting tagged as a half back which was very foreign no you obviously got defensive forwards in the game but that was all off the back of Ruzi and his ability obviously you could see a lot of myself and his aggressive mindset. Now, having said that, I end up turning out to be a coach that's like Ruzi. Um, I'm very aggressive mindset when I played as far as taking the game on, yet I value so much the defensive side of the game as a coach. And hence, and that's I was Ruzi's number one thing. I think he understood if you can be a very good defensive team, you're a chance of winning the premiership and the numbers don't lie as far as being the top two defensive team in the competition. You know, adding the last 19 premierships have been won by the top two um, defensive teams in the comp. <clears throat> And your relationship with Paul Ruse uh, still pretty close to these uh, this day. I believe he called you after, uh, I guess, due to the cost cuts, the Swans when they let you go due to the uh, COVID. That's is that correct? Yep, yep, yeah. I'm still very close. Still very close himself and Tammy and the boys. Um, yeah, we talk regularly, and yeah, he's just a. Oh, well, you, you're kind of interesting. It's amazing the way things happen in your life, you know, around um, things transpire, obviously, with the Rocket situation and, and Ruzi coaching and, and the way everything transpired as far as the success that we had. Um, to connect with someone um, like I did with, with Ruzi, um, you know, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very, very lucky. Um, <clears throat> he's a great man. He's, you know, he's got a lot of care for his players and for people. And um, and he's just an honest guy, you know, that... Um, he obviously knows a lot about the game, but just just a, a real honest, caring, and and as far as coach is concerned, he's got a real understanding and empathy towards his players. And he understood my situation more than anyone else. As far I'd go into his rooms after a game, you know, and um, you know I might have played a shocker. It didn't happen too often, but um, <laughs> and uh, he he'd just sit down and we talk about Ireland, and talk about my family, and talk about what's going on over there, and and, and then out we go, and and we wouldn't watch any vision. You know, and, and that was as good for, for me as, as watching any game, you know, and, and reviewing any game. And um, yeah, he's, he's been he's a great man, a great family, a great family man. And um, certainly gave me a bit of balance around understanding the balance of, of life with football and, and, and off field stuff, which he had here that nailed as a coach. <clears throat> I was hoping you could give a little bit of an insight, if you have any, um, I guess, inside uh, knowledge. 2003, I mean, as a, as a Swans fan, that's like what, like the first year where I said, you know, I'm going to be, a, like, I've had family who, who were Swans supporters and then, you know, uh, I guess you could say uh, brainwashed. And But no, 2003 all started <laughs> for me being a Swans supporter. I guess um, what happened in 2003, I guess uh, there was a particular Ruckman who was let go early on in the, the days because uh, um, mentioning Rick, Ricky Mont, of course, um, I think the headline was too fat to be a swan. A little bit kind of backfired because Jason Ball got injured, um, that would sort of open the door for Adam Goods to go into the ruck. But I was wondering uh, what happened with Ricky Mont? Uh, he kind of went to Frio, went to Carlton and we never really saw him again. Yeah, look, I honestly believe it was a bit of 
you know, short pain, short term pain for long term gain. Um, Rouge, you could see a lot of stuff that was going on um, around the club as far as changing the culture of the football club. Um, you know, from a off field drinking partying perspective, you know, and around making the game a lot more professional and the club a lot more professional. And 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 Ricky ended up being a scapegoat almost for that, um, and an, and an example of. You know, this is what we don't want as far as, you know, to go about your off-field stuff. Because Ricky was playing some unbelievable football. Like, wow. And, and to make that call, we understood it. And we understood, wow, this is this this guy's pretty serious here in what way you want us to prepare and, and be athletes around the game and, and, and get the most out of ourselves and, pre- and, and prepare properly and take care of your body. Um, and that decision you could clearly see was was – was going to impact the group. And I think that decision went a long way to helping us win the premiership two years later, or three years later. <clears throat> yeah. And, and, and big call by a coach that, you know, said, you know, I'm going to put up with some short-term pain here and obviously lose games and, and lose a preliminary final against Brisbane. And you mentioned 2005 there, the year of mm-hmm. uh, greatness for uh, us Swan supporters, that's for sure. Um, I mean, a very successful year for, for you as a Swans, and I guess as an individual playing every game in the most minutes, not spending any time on the pine. Uh, how would Ty Canelli today go uh, playing a full game of AFL? Well, if you asked me a month ago, Joel, I would have said no hope. I've just ran. Today is the 31st of August. I've just ran and 150K in the month of August for the Fred Hollow Foundation. Um, and a bunch of guys I was telling you about um, on Wednesday mornings, we decided we'd do something for charity during lockdown. And um, I'm probably a chance to play 10 minutes now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the game is very quick. The game is probably more suited to me now than it was back then um, because it was a lot more of an endurance-based game. Now, having said that, I had a tank, but... Um, my my number one asset was my, my 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 speed and my ability to get on ball quickly on the ground against bigger opponents because I was six foot three or one ninety you know so um, I'd play on that you know the taller types but I, which I used to love because I knew I was a lot quicker all I'd do is get the ball to the ground and I'd be away so um, and today's game had been you know so explosive um, would have suited me to the ground but uh, yeah no I I think if I was to play now I'd be lucky to play ten minutes I reckon. I mean, you do miss it every now and then, you know. You do miss yeah. it. Sorry, you do miss it. That, you know, you. I don't, not that I think about it, but I actually think about how I, would I go if I was playing today's game, you know, and, and ten years ago. I know, but um, yeah. Well, well, on that, who who would I guess out of the Swans, who would you like to play alongside? Who could you see you gelling really well with? Well, I look at a young fella in Justin McInerney, and it's like I'm looking at myself. Um, and it's a It's even when I'm co- was coaching at the club, you know, I could see Justin and the way he's he's got no fear. He take things on. You get caught on the ball, he'll, go, he'll do it again ten more times. Um, you know, he loves to take the game on. He's aggressive. Um, you know, I see a lot of a lot of myself and Joel. Um, yeah, Rams is one. I'd love to. Rams is similar to Lewis Roberts Thompson. You often kind of put these types together, don't you? you know, comparing apples with apples. You know, Parker, Bolton. You know, Kirk. You know, Ken. Like you, you, you very much. That's what you do through years, obviously. Um, you know, obviously, Buddy and Barry Hall. You know, you got forward. You know, so it, it, there's often comparisons. And but we had a very tight back unit. You know, there's seven of us there, eight of us through that time that were very, very close and played a lot of football together as had you know Heats Grundy and, and Ted Richards and, and Nick Malcheski and, and they played a lot of football together and you need that to, to come through together which where we're at right now as a football club is that you know 
the boys will be hurting after the loss, obviously, last weekend. But they'll they'll come they're coming together. There's a group of seven, eight, maybe ten that are coming. They'll probably play two hundred games of AFL football for the club if they can stay here. And and that's going to be immense for the success of the club going forward. And the lessons they would have learned from last week will burn for a long, long time. Long past next season, the season after and the season after, they'll have a real appreciation of playing finals football because of it. I think it was 10 kids or 10 or 9 kids that uh, was their first final. So, I mean, yeah, as a supporter, really disappointed when losing to GWS, the old rival by a point. But I kind of saw as well the future is uh, is looking really bright. I guess with the, the 2005 final series, an absolute gruelling series in the sense that uh, a close mm. loss to uh, West Coast over in Perth for a qualifying final, that classic... Uh, Ugly game against Geelong, except for the final quarter with uh, Nick Davis's uh, four final quarter goals, and then uh, getting over the Saints to a bit of a bogey team and making it all the way to the grand final. I guess the the, the lead up to a grand final, you've got a grand final parade and all the all that type of thing happening. How was your lead up to uh, grand final day? Yeah, it was awesome. Um, absolutely loved it. You know, I think that. You know, once we lost to, to, to West Coast over there, we all thought we'd blown it, you know, and um, we got in the rooms and Ruzi straight away said, right, park it, we're done. Let's go, let's get on the plane, let's focus on next week. And we barely touched the game as such, you know, and we kind of refocused our mind and, and, and gave us the best chance of getting there. And, and we did get there, obviously, to the big day. So um, but my parents had flown over for um, the, the preliminary final and, and they, they flew in that morning. So they, they were there for the preliminary final, which was awesome. So... Uh, and then they were there for the week. And um, But Andrew Ireland, who was the footy manager at the club at the time, for the week that was in it, you know, I was worried about where my parents going to stay. And I had aunts, uncles, cousins. I, I had a party of about 20 that had come over. So I was going, well, where are these people going to stay? All this kind of stuff. So And he just said, look, we got it. Don't worry about it. You go and worry about training. And, and the club took care of all of it, um, which was great. And um, Basil Sellers, is become a very good friend of mine. Uh, has a place in Double Bay, uh, two apartments, and put me in a couple. My uncle and my brother and a couple of cousins in there, and it actually goes the the back door of the uh, of the apartment goes onto Double Bay. And uh, my uncle was ringing home saying he couldn't sleep at night because the, the noise and the waves were washing up against his back door <laughs> and the accommodation that he was staying in. So the lead up was. Tremendous in Sydney. Obviously, the history with 72 years, we were well aware of it. Um, but then get down to Melbourne, it just rose to another level, you know, with the, the parade. And um, <clears throat> But the club are very good at protecting you about it. But I, I really enjoy soaking, my, soaking that up and, and getting myself into it. And, and I really enjoy that. Um, uh, and I enjoy just putting myself out there. And I'm an outgoing person, so I, I, didn't, I didn't really get caught up in that thing. I don't try and seclude myself away from it. I just want to embrace myself in the whole thing. And very much so I did that. I remember coming out the morning of the grand final because uh, I was up for goal of the year. And if you remember back then, there was um, the coverage would start Channel 10 from 9 to 6 p.m. So 9 a.m., 6 p.m., but they'd go through the day. I had people back home, Channel 10 had sent people over to Ireland to camera. Andy Maher was actually over there and late night, middle of the night, and he's crossing to people that are out of their mind because it's five or six in the morning in Ireland <laughs> and uh, they're full of the good stuff. And, um, and I'm talking to them like during pre-game and um and then you know Juddy wins the car and I'm gosh it's going oh man there's my car gone and um but you know the, the build-up was was fantastic for me and I, and I remember arriving the MCG and going up the race <clears throat> as one of the clearest memories I have of this game is just just this 
energy coming down the race against me. And I'm, I'm, I was quite superstitious when I played, and I, I used to always be the last one to go onto the ground. Being the last, you'd be beside the coaches, and um, Ruzi was beside me, and this, 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 this wave of energy just comes down the tunnel, and I just start laughing. I just, I don't know what came over me, and I start laughing my head off, and I go to Ruzi, how good is this? This is unbelievable. And I'm laughing, and he's, we're laughing together, and I've got my hand around him going out the race. Um, and we're both laughing, and he goes, "Oh, good to see you're tuned in." And uh, <laughs> so, uh, but I, I was then trying to find my parents. Went on the ground, soaked up the whole atmosphere, and was trying to find my parents in the in the stand, and um, just really tried to enjoy the whole thing and a bit of my personality, really. But yeah, truly, a true great experience for your first one. Now, uh, you're a mutual bystander. Uh, what's better, <laughs> Leo's mark or Nick Davis uh, kicking four final quarter goals against Geelong in that elimination uh, final? Yeah, difficult one, just because I don't want to tell Dickie, because yeah, Dickie will be, I, I hear it enough from him. Um, and also the fact that I should have given a free kick away for Leo, and I was part of it. I was uh, I was actually in the pack, and I remember when it happened, you know, Ashley Sampy just won the car for market year that morning, and I was playing on him that last couple of minutes, and I saw him get, kick the ball in, obviously the ball's come back in from Coxie, and I'm going, there he is, he's blocks market here there was no way he's getting off the ground and I've just beelined towards him grabbed hold of his shirt and just held on for dear life and I truly didn't know who had marked the ball so like, I, I turned around and was like where's the ball I had a massive cut in my head here and I was like where's the ball who's got it and I turned around Leo's on the ground with the ball in his hand I've gone thank God and then the siren goes and I just jump on top of him so Leo for me every day <laughs> You are. You're the first one to jump on him because Leo Barry. He, I mean, I don't think anyone heard the siren except for you, and um, you've you've jumped on him there. And I guess uh, what, what's what's going through the head to, uh, there? I mean, one of the best marks of all time in a grand final or a final series. You're a premiership um, player. I mean, how is that? Yeah, initially you just you're almost in a state of shock, almost like you just you're still competitive. You're still in the game. Even the siren's gone, you're still gone. And then it's just like, what's happened? What is, is have we won? Is it, is this after happening? We've won. What we've won. What we've won. You know, it's just incredible. And, um, and, and that's part of what's happened with, with us as, as a group at the time, you kind of shock and, um, you jump on and in the realization hits you that you've actually won it. Um, and that raw emotion and memories and, and sacrifices and, and everything you've gone through start, start coming to the fore a bit. And something that lives in the folklore for a lot of Sydney supporters and even in AFL is uh, the jig that you did on the uh, the podium there. Yeah, it was pretty special, wasn't it? Uh, and, and it was pretty it was instinctive. Uh, Nick Fosdoke had got it before me to accept his medal. I said, man, you've got to do something. And I was walking up and I'd, I had been thinking about maybe getting a flag, but it just didn't, ha- just didn't happen. And then I just thought, you know what? I'll just break out into a jig and... No, I didn't do. I haven't done a lot of Irish dancing lessons. Um, so I did my best Michael Flatley rendition of the River Dance, and, and um, yeah, it was pretty special. And people at home loved it. And uh, uh, yeah, it was very, very instinctive. I must say, it wasn't planned at all. And as successful as 2005 was for you and for the Swans, uh, your father Tim would sadly pass away in December of the same year. I guess the ultimate high of a premiership and the low of losing mm. a loved one. I guess one as a person and then as a footballer moving into the 2006 season. How was that? Yeah, very difficult. Uh, you know, the saddest thing in the whole lot is you know the year itself. It just hasn't got a good ring for me. You know, you, you, that was the year I lost my father. 
yeah, it's not a special year um, and special for a lot of people and what we've been able to achieve as a football club. But um, yeah, for myself personally, very, very difficult. And um, I, I, I really struggle to get back to... Uh, I, I got a lot of hatred towards Australia because I'd felt that the country took away, um, you know, 18 to 24 away from my father where you really get to know your dad over a beer and the real stories about him and what he was like and what he got up to. And I'd felt a small bit that that's, this is my head, like Australia taking this away from me. And there was a lot of anger towards Australia. I was dealing with, with angrily, really. Um, and, you know, I struggled to come back. I tried to come back a couple of times and I couldn't. Um, and I was thinking, oh, well, maybe I'm done. You know, I couldn't get back. I just couldn't leave my mom, to tell you the truth. Um, and eventually my wife flew over, who was, who was my girlfriend at the time. And um, we went to, um, the boys were playing in uh, in LA, good day LA, we played a game in LA and we went to Hawaii and I met him there and um, got back slowly back into back into things. But um, very difficult. And a lot of that, that 2006 was it was almost a blur to tell you the truth. That year itself was a blur. I, I couldn't really tell you how my form was. Footy, I know I hurt my shoulder in a preseason game and, and I rushed back and played six weeks later from a dislocation and a, a shoulder recall, which was crazy. It was just the headspace that I was in wasn't healthy and, um, you know, it was a difficult time for me. But, um, you know, we managed to go on and, and, and play in a, a, another grand final and, and albeit be that close to winning it, you know, and we, probably, we, we should have really stole it. <clears throat> And as we said, your father, team, a legend in Gaelic football in Ireland. I mean, you wanted to pay tribute to him and I guess that's what led to your departure from the Swans in 2008? Yeah, it probably sped the process up a small bit, you know, around, you know, dad passing away. And I, like I said, the start, I grew up idolising the old man and, um, and, and I was no different. And, you know, I wanted to go back and try and do what he'd done and that was winning on Ireland for Kerry. And, you know, I grew up wanting to do that my whole life and, um, I made the decision in 2008 to, to go and do it and, and have a crack at it. And um, lucky enough, you know, things, things, <laughs> the way things transpired was was quite amazing that year. It was quite difficult getting back into the wrong ball after being away in early 10 years, you know, and um, getting back used to it again. Um, and and certainly it was challenging itself and going back into the into the wrong ball again. But yeah, we were uh, went back and was lucky enough to go back and. Uh, Get to the big dance and 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 win the win the All Ireland with, with with Kerry, which was pretty special. There's actually a photo of your father holding the cup in 1979. I'm a, I'm a bit of a weird numbers guy, uh, and you <laughs> fast forward to 2009, so 30 years mm. later, you're you're holding that same cup. Could you say was that kind of cathartic in a sense that that helped you grieve the grieving process, knowing that you had honoured him in that type of way? Yeah. 100%. Um, I, I absolutely broke down after that. Went into the rooms and uh, I'd never been as emotional in my life. I just was inconsolable, really. I just was, I'd broken down. It was just, that was probably almost my my way of dealing with everything and the way it happened. I'd bottled a lot of stuff up in those couple of years with my, my dad and the anger. And, um, that truly was a point of where I just felt like it was a part of me healing from, from my father's passing, you know, um, you're a young man, you know, you're, you're 23 at the time when it happened. So you, to deal with all that stuff was quite difficult and I didn't really deal with it. No one tells you or shows you or there's no manual on how to, how to, how to deal with death. You know, and everyone does it differently in grieving. And I certainly did it a bit different, but um, that 2009 certainly helped the healing process a small bit. And I guess sort of winning uh, that the, the All-Island Championship, did that sort of make it easier then to come back to Australia and Aussie rules footy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%, Joel. Like, 
it's interesting if we did win it, what would I have done? You know, and, um, mm. I wonder if I'd be living in Sydney now. You know, if you're two two years old at a game at the back end of my career, you probably would have been thinking that I'd be done. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see what my wife would be saying about that at the time. You know, she she had a lot to say about it too. You know, she wanted to live rarer kids and 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 obviously have kids in, um, in Sydney. But um, yeah, it, yeah, I don't want to think about it, what I, what I would have done. And I guess uh, you, you come back to the Swans at the end of the, the 2009 season going into 2010. Were you surprised how much the game of AFL had changed only in like that 12-month span? Yeah, the games, the game had really become a front-on front pressure game. You know, it was, it was before that, obviously, it had been a lot of obviously floating back and, and a bit more one-on-one with Ruzi play, but then it became a real frontal game um, where the teams were pressing up and um, Clark had changed the very style of the way the game had been played. Um, certainly, it was a huge shift in the game back then. And I guess um, there was a transition at this point as well. Uh, 2010 was Ruzi's last uh, year as coach of the Swans, uh, tr- uh, changing over to John Longmire with Horse. Uh, how did you find that transition? You know, I was probably, I suppose, if you look at my form, wasn't too good. But I was coming towards the latter part of my career, you know, and I, and I knew I was coming. I was 30 years of age, 31 years of age, going, well, you know, I, I knew I was going to play forever. Um, but, yeah, Horse is a great great friend of ours. You know, he, he he was at the club in 2001, is that right? Or 2002, was it? So he'd been around the club. It's not as if I didn't know Horse, you know, and then, um, you know, I, I remember in 2011, halfway through the year, you know, I said, look, I'm, I'm probably done here, horse. Um, you know, and, and he said, right, I'll make a decision that's going on. I'm going to play you on. And, and he played me. You know, and there was games there. I should have been dropped, really. Um, you know, my form wasn't warranted. But, you know, he was backing me in to, to keep playing. And, and it was probably a good message to sell the group to going forward as far as, well, you know, if you play over 200 games of footy at the club, we'll take care of you. And, um, I, I wonder if that was the messaging he was trying to, portrayed to the other players um, and, and and it worked obviously so in time the following year we go on and win the, win the flag which hurt a small bit <laughs> got to push on yeah did that go did that go through the mind if you go oh maybe just could have got a couple more games you know into it yeah, 2012 or... yeah I was I was done I was done I, I couldn't handle it I couldn't handle it. physically my, my right knee was absolutely shot I was you know I'd barely done a couple of pre-seasons you know and my, my right knee was really in, in all sorts um, that year. And, you know, yeah, no, it was the right call. It was the right call. And uh, you were invited to the 2011 grand final dinner and you made a speech in front of the footy public plus uh, then PM Julia Gillard. Yeah, it was pretty special. Um, it was almost like a, a job interview to tell you the truth <laughs> that, that, you know, that you look at every player, one retired player gets the opportunity to do it. And, and looking enough, I was the, I was the one to, to get it. And um, yeah, there's you know, the CEO of every major corporation in the in, in the country, and, and the prime minister, a lot of politicians, and um, basically taught my my life story uh, and what the game had meant to me and, and what the club had meant to me as far as um, making me who I was. You got to remember, I was 17, 18 years of age coming out to a country that could have really. Um, you know, bent my moral compass in a way that that, that that shouldn't be. And but it went the other way. You know, it straightened me up. It really built the character into me and built a lot of resilience into who I am and, and become as a person. And a lot of that was is the football club and the Swans. And I guess uh, post footy uh, today. Um, I mean, what are you doing now? I mean, know um, uh, last year you were with the Swans, but they had cuts, unfortunately, like most of the AFL. So I guess where 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 have you landed uh, at this point in time? 
Yeah, um, I'm very, very happy, to tell you the truth. Um, you know, stepping away, being, being forced away, I suppose, from the game was a bit difficult at the time. Um, you know, I've got an education degree, so I went into education. Um, I'm now running, running sport at a, a private school up here in Sydney, um, and I'm loving it. Um, a very different pace. Obviously, in the coaching camper, you know, the, the high-level intensity, which drew me back into the game a small bit, and I was ready. Uh, but now having a younger family, um, I'm not too sure I could handle being away 60, 70 days this year and you know, 100 days last year away from my kids. Um, I absolutely adore my kids and my three of them. And, and um, it would absolutely kill me being away from them uh, for longer than a week, to tell you the truth. So um, you know, the decision was, wasn't my decision, but in hindsight, um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly very happy right now as far as where I've landed. So assistant coaching or even, uh, I guess, coaching as a whole, is that something that um, not necessarily wanted to pursue at this point in time? Yeah, right. No, no. Um, and the, the major factor is that is, is just upping and going right now with my kids, you know, in a couple of years' time, maybe. Um, you know, it's, it's something. I love footy. I absolutely love it. And I'm one of those blokes that will watch footy to, to the death, to, you know, to the annoyance of some of my friends and mates. I go, this bloke just... Like, I love talking about football. I love watching footy. I, I just engross myself in it because I really enjoy it. And that you have to do that as a coach. And that's probably why the coaching transition for me was relatively easy because I just love watching it. I love working. And often I wouldn't understand how much I was involved in it. And even my wife would say, no, that haven't you been out of the game? You're a different person because I didn't realize how hard I was working because I was actually enjoying it so much. Uh, and it didn't feel like work because I was watching tape after vision after vision after vision and I was just enthralled and, and I was forgetting what was going on with my kids and my, the balance was taught a lot of whack. But at the time, it didn't feel like it because I was enjoying it. Is there any chance, I mean, we've had the introduction of um, a lot of new AFLW sides, so the Swans are part of that list. So any chance we could see future Canellis uh, in red and white? <laughs> yeah, well, I've got a daughter. She's seven-year-old Maggie um, and she loves her footy. It's funny, you know, she, obviously just before COVID, she's starting to get around. The, pair, the kids are talking, her dad played for the Swans. And she's starting to take a real interest at the moment where it just flicks. Her, the other kids are asking her about her dad. Um, so she, she's got a real interest in the game. And I've got two younger boys that are five and three, um, Jake and Huey. So, um, and they, they love sport. And we're very sporty, my wife and I as well. So, um, you know, like they'll do as their parents do, obviously. You've been very generous with your time, uh, Ty. I really appreciate speaking with you. Loved watching you play uh, back in uh, the red and white. Uh, like I said, uh, that sort of 2002 to 2006, seven was my peak fandom as an AFL fan and uh, as a Swannies fan. Still love them to this day. Greatly uh, appreciate you speaking to the Bloods of Old podcast. No, thank you, Joel. I really appreciate fans and, and support that people like yourself and, and the supporters around the, around the country for the Swans. You know, it's great to see. And I love putting a smile in people's face when I was playing. I love talking about the Swans, love talking about footy stuff. Great to be on the show.